Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start by thanking our new patrons, HTTP Aladdin, Mary Jeanette, Tyra A., Feather, Rachel Barnstable, and Heather Boniker. We couldn't do this without you. Our patrons get a second monthly episode of 13 delivered directly to a patron-only RSS feed. You'll also get ad-free versions of the show, access to a Patreon-only Discord server where you can chat with us and other fans of the show, bloopers, weekly updates, and more. Find us at patreon.com forward slash 13pod. A couple things before we start. As we get into the holiday season, check out our merch store for the 13 fan in your life. There are lots of shirts, mugs, stickers, and more. My favorite design at the moment is our possum-themed tarot card shirts. They're pretty cool. My entire family got those. It was pretty cool. Find a link to the merch store in the show notes. Also, just like last year, there is an audio drama, audio fiction, college-level course available at Hutchison College. And the coolest part is, we're a part of it. If you were a fan of Olive Hill, you can also study Olive Hill, which is so weird and so cool to say out loud. Check out the show notes for more information. Last thing, we all know that Brooke is funny, right? Like she's scary, but she's also funny. You can hear Brooke be funny over at Podcube. Podcube is a non-explicit, highly produced, semi-improvised, surrealist sketch comedy anthology podcast. Premise on a recording device that can capture anything in space and time. Catch Brooke on a few of the most recent transmissions. Look for links to those episodes in the show notes. Okay, this month we're performing The Last Phone Booth in My Town Rings at 101 AM by Stephen Rivera and performed by the one and only Kayla Timshiv. Quick note, we have content warnings at the bottom of the show notes. Take a look at those. Are you ready? Turn down the lights. Get comfy. And now... On with the show. Most of the other kids my age drive. I don't. Out here in the suburbs, it's the best way to get around. When I was practicing for my full license, I backed over my neighbor's cat in our driveway. The cat lived, but I cried for a week and swore to never touch a set of car keys again. So we walk. Me, my boyfriend, Sid, and my seven-year-old brother, Tim. Tim usually trails behind us, off in his own world, giving Sid and I space as we walk ahead, hand in hand. It was already dark that winter evening when we walked home from our school's basketball game. I asked my little brother if he could walk the last few blocks alone. Tell mom I'll be home late, I said. He knew what we were doing. I'll tell her you guys went to the park to kiss. Sid cut in. Tell your mom she raised a little snitch. Tim crossed his forearms before running off towards home. Tim was right. Sid and I did indeed have plans in the park. Sid had recently bought a very cheap fake ID, and he wanted to test it out at the local liquor store. To my surprise, it actually worked. We sat for hours in the empty park, drinking an $8 bottle of wine and smoking cigarettes. We shared a pair of earbuds, listening to Sid's most romantic bolt thrower mix. 
I always struggled to get into death metal, but his enthusiasm was contagious. When the wine was long gone and our lips were stained a deep purple, Sid offered to walk me home. There was a chill in the air, so we took a shortcut through an undeveloped strip of trees that bordered the old Texaco gas station. The gas station had shut down years ago. The windows were boarded up and a metal fence surrounded it, probably to keep out people like us. And also inside the fence, a lone phone booth. The only payphone left in our little suburb. Its neon bulb constantly flickered, as though on the verge of giving up for good. I checked the time on my phone. It was 1 a.m. on the dot. I turned to Sid and performed a perfect little bow and gestured towards the phone booth. My timing was a few seconds off, but just as it struck 1.01 a.m., the payphone rang. Sid was stunned. How did you do that? He asked. I gave him a grin. Magic. Sid wasn't buying it. Come on. You really don't know? It always rings, every night at this time. Sid looked at me, and then to the phone booth. Then, he hopped up on the metal fence. I tried to grab his leg. What are you doing? I didn't get to him in time, and he dropped on the other side. Answering it, he said, through the chain links. I shouted to him, No! Don't! I felt a surge of fear. I didn't know why. But my mother had always warned me, do not go near that gas station. And no matter what, do not touch that phone. But it was too late. Sid had already picked up the receiver. Howdy, he said. But I watched as his smile slowly faded. He stood stiff listening for a moment, and then hung up. All the color had left his face. Sid walked me the rest of the way home, but his mood had darkened. When I asked him what he heard on the phone, he said it was a collect call. He said that he accepted the charges. But after that, it was just the sound of someone breathing on the other end. I told him that didn't make any sense. You have to pay for a collect call. He didn't put any quarters into the phone. Sid just gave me a confused look as the realization dawned on him too. We walked the rest of the way home. He wouldn't answer my calls or texts. Was this his immature way of dumping me? By Sunday evening, I couldn't bear it any longer, and I called his home phone. His dad answered and told me Sid wasn't feeling well and that he hadn't slept for two whole nights. His dad said something strange. A bad case of the heebie-jeebies, he called it. Then he hung up on me before I could find out more. It was in Monday's science class that I realized something was truly wrong with him. At first, I was glad that he showed up at all. But he was withdrawn. His eyes were dark like he hadn't slept. His hair greasy and unwashed. Sid wasn't the most handsome boy in my grade, but his personal hygiene was always good. That was no longer the case. 
I had to breathe through my mouth to avoid the stinging waves of body odor. We stood paired at the lab table. It was biology, and we were dissecting sheep eyes. The class was buzzing with excitement and disgust. The teacher battled to keep us under control. I started to follow the instructions, cutting through the sclera, the fluid oozing out onto my tray until I managed to hack my way to the lens. I looked over at Sid's tray to see how he was doing. What I saw made me scream. Sid had used his scalpel to slice around the entirety of his own thumbnail. The rest of the nails on his hand had already been removed, leaving horrifying patches of torn flesh and blood on each finger. The teacher ran over and snatched the tools away from him. I yelled at Sid, clinging to his arm. No matter what I did, he was impassive to my screams and the rest of the class freaking out around us. Sid wasn't at school the rest of the week. Rumors about what had happened spread wildly through the halls. Our relationship was no secret, so I wasn't surprised when a couple days later my counselor brought me in for a talk in his little office. He asked me if Sid had been acting strange, if he had been taking any drugs. I told him the only thing that I thought could explain it. The phone booth, the one that rings every night. He was understandably skeptical. I told him about my mom's warning to stay away from it, never to answer it. But he shrugged it off as an attempt to scare us away from messing around on private property. After taking my brother home from school, I walked over to Sid's house to see how he was doing. Sid's parents were private people. They lived in a small bungalow on the street with no other occupied houses. The lawn was overgrown and the paint left peeling on the old blue wood cladding. I had to knock a few times before someone finally answered. It was an older man, who must have been Sid's father, but he looked bad. He had a week's worth of stubble and unkempt hair that fell over his eyes in messy strands. It was actually my first time meeting Sid's father, and I was a little taken aback by his appearance. I got myself together and spoke up. Hi, I'm a friend of Sid's. The man replied, he's not well. Sid's father tried to close the door on me, but I braced it with my foot. Please, Sid and I are very close. Just then, I heard a groan from within the house. I poked my head in to see the darkness of the hallway. At the end of the hall sat Sid. His hand was bandaged, and his wrists were bound to the arms of the chair with cable ties. He was rocking rhythmically back and forth in his restraints. I cried out in panic and fear. Sid's father pushed me away from the door. You need to go. It's for his own good. He needs to sleep. I stood there defiant. He still hasn't slept? He should be in the hospital. The man snipped and the door slammed shut in my face. I found out that my school counselor had called my mom, because that night at dinner, she said she was sorry to hear about Sid, and she tried to casually have a conversation about drugs. 
We sat around a big dish of mac and cheese with crispy breadcrumb topping, which my mom knows is my favorite. I barely had an appetite thinking of Sid strapped to that chair. I told her I didn't do drugs, and neither does Sid. My brother interrupted. Dad says drugs bring the fucking demons out in us. My mom and I were both shocked. She gave me an accusing look, and then turned to him. Timothy, where did you hear that word? Dad said it, Timothy told her. Timothy, you've never spoken to your father, she said. He piped up again. I spoke to him on the phone. Like Mom said, our father had been dead since Timothy was too young to remember him. But then, something happened. Her eyes turned cold as she processed what he'd said. Which phone? She asked, a grave and urgent look on her face. She grabbed my brother's arm so hard that he dropped his fork. Which phone did you speak to him on? He didn't seem to understand the urgency of the situation. The one by the gas station? All of the color drained from my mom's face as she raised her voice. Haven't I told you never to go near that phone? Her nails were digging into his arm. She saw what she was doing and let go. Timothy ran upstairs and slammed his door shut. That night, when I came out of the shower, I could hear my mother crying in her room. I texted Sid again, no longer expecting a response, but simply because I had no one else to talk to. How are you doing? I miss you. I'm scared. He didn't respond, but I could see that the message had been read. It was about 12.30 a.m., and I was still awake. I heard a car door close and got up to look out the window. My mom was backing out of the driveway. Where could she be going at this time? It was 3 a.m. when I was awakened by another sound. My mom was pulling back into the driveway. The headlights were off. I watched through the blinds from my window. She got out and looked around the empty street as if she was being followed. She opened the trunk and took out Tim's baseball bat, and then she locked the car and came inside. The next day at school, the principal came over the loudspeaker, calling me to his office. Waiting in the office was my counselor, a man in a suit, and two uniformed police officers. I stood there in my gym clothes, having no idea what was going on. The man in the suit jacket introduced himself as a detective and asked the counselor if there was somewhere private he could talk to me. The detective's chubby face was somber. He started by asking me about our relationship and when was the last time I saw Sid Brown. It seems stupid, but I thought Sid was in trouble for having a fake ID. I said I had tried to visit him at home, but his dad wouldn't let me. The detective made a note, and then he placed a paper printout in front of me. It was a screenshot of my text to Sid the night before. Did you send this message? He asked. Yes. What's he done? The detective shifted in his seat. 
Well, miss, I'm sorry to inform you, but Sid Brown's body has been found. He watched me carefully, registering my shock before continuing. According to his parents, he ran away from their home just after midnight. We thought he might have left to see you? I covered my mouth as the tears welled up in my eyes, trying to hold it together. He gave me a moment before continuing. I'm sorry, miss. Did you see Sid Brown last night? He was deceased shortly after you sent this message. I told him I was home in bed and hadn't seen Sid. I asked the detective how he died. He was hesitant to tell me. He asked if I knew of anyone that would want to hurt Sid, or if Sid had done anything to hurt me. I said no, and that's when he let it slip. Sid had suffered multiple strikes to the head. He had been bludgeoned to death with a blunt object. Possibly a baseball bat. He watched me carefully, looking for any sort of reaction. I sensed in his hands that he was holding photos of the body, but he refrained from showing me these, and I was glad for that. Did he think I was somehow involved? My emotions took full control of me now, and the detective didn't get out another useful word. They called my mother to pick me up, and I cried all the way home. I was unable to look at my mother. Could it have been her? I couldn't bear the thought. When we got back, I ran to my room and locked the door. I cried myself to sleep, and didn't wake up until the next morning. As the bleak winter sun rose, I lay in bed, reading through the old texts between me and Sid. The more I missed him, the more my anger grew. I was at boiling point when I went downstairs to confront my mother. Timothy was eating Lucky Charms and watching Dragon Ball in the living room. When she saw me, she turned the volume up on the TV. She then made a beeline for the kitchen and put the kettle on. Tea, she said. You fucking evil bitch, I growled in her face. I could see her fury rising. I had never spoken to her like this before. In the other room, Timothy turned around on the couch to see what was going on. My mother gave him a fake smile, and he turned back to the TV. I saw you last night. I saw you come home. I saw the fucking bat. Her fury subsided and shifted into guilt. He made a deal, okay? She burst out. He made a deal with the collar, and nothing can change that. The collar? What are you talking about? She tried to grab my hand. I pulled it away. Darling, I am so, so sorry about your boyfriend. I know it's terrible, but he was already gone. He answered that phone. And now it was her turn to tear up. Your father, your brother, I had to pay the caller. Timothy interrupted us with his bowl of milk. Mommy, can I have more marshmallows? She smiled and poured him some more charms. He sat on the stool at the counter. I noticed now that dark bags had developed under my brother's eyes. Was he sleeping at all? Timothy asked, are you guys fighting? Mom replied, no, honey, 
but hurry up. You'll be late for school. I stayed home that day. My mother drove Tim to school and would be at work until evening. The thought of calling the police and turning her in ran through my mind, but her and my brother were all I had. Did I believe her? I knew she was right about Sid. After he picked up that phone, he wasn't himself again. Just an empty shell. But she had killed him, and so violently. I could barely stomach it, but she did it to save Tim. Or at least, she thought she did. If it's true, could I blame her? By evening, I decided I needed to know for myself. If my mother was telling the truth, maybe one day I could forgive her. I needed to go to the phone booth. I wouldn't answer it. I just needed to go. I waited until after midnight. Finally, the light under the door of my mother's room had been switched off. I crept downstairs and silently went out the back door. It was cold, and a mist hung in the air and trailed off into darkness. My brother's bicycle lay on the frosty grass in the yard. My own bike had been rusting for months with a flat tire. The cheap, plastic training wheels on my brother's bike sounded like a shopping cart clamoring through a cobbled street. My brother could surely ride without them. About a block from my house, I dismounted and bent the cheap metal brackets back and forth until the training wheels broke off. I felt silly on a seven-year-old's bicycle, cursing my fear of driving a car. I cut through a couple empty lots and took the shortcut through the strip of trees. I was back at the gas station in a matter of minutes. I was early, ten minutes early. Instead of climbing over the fence, there was a gap between two sections that I could squeeze through. I was having doubts, thoughts that anything sinister about this phone was a fabrication for my mother's benefit. But as I approached, I felt a chill, a coldness that crawled over my skin. The booth was dusty inside. On the glass, someone had written in the dust with a finger, you never call. On the floor of the booth was a phone book from the past, the paper rotten and moldy. I opened it. Many of the pages stuck together, but I managed to read a few names. I looked up my own family. We were in there, address and all, but the phone number had been crudely altered with a pen. All of the numbers had been changed to sixes. I looked up Sid's family. It was the same, all sixes. I got lost in the book finding more and more numbers that had been changed. And then it rang. The sound made every hair on my body prickle. I raised my hands towards the phone handle, a shaking, conflicted hand which seemed to do everything my mind told it not to do. As my fingers closed around the receiver, I saw it blood. A wave of blood inside the booth, crashing against the glass. And the ringing turned to screaming. Screams from Sid. I saw his face. 
a mask-like face, holding the phone as a bat came crashing into the back of his skull from behind. The force of the strike sent his face into the metal casing of the phone. His nose crumpled in an explosion of blood. The bat came again and again, his limp body propped against the wall of the booth, shuddering with each blow. I heard a scream from my father. I saw my dad's face, mouth wide open in agony. The agonized face aged and the flesh rotted away until all that was left was a skull wrapped in a thin layer of tight gray skin. And last was Tim's face, his little seven-year-old face, pale, fresh, innocent, wide eyes, with a stream of blood trickling from a wound on his forehead. I jumped back from the booth without answering the phone. Sweat was pouring down my face and chest, but the vision stopped and the phone had ceased to ring. I squeezed back through the gap in the fence, trying to get away from the booth. The experience had drained me. I sat down on a curb, hyperventilating, catching my breath. But something else was wrong. I could feel it. Was someone watching me? I looked back at the empty booth and at the station with its boarded windows. I peered into the darkness all around me, into the pitch black trees across the street. A pair of eyes were there, their face concealed by shadow. As my eyes turned to meet theirs, the figure scuffled off into the woods. I rode home as fast as I could, wanting to get away from the booth and the horrible visions that I couldn't shake from my mind. My eyes streaming with tears. What I had seen was so real and so terrifying. Back inside the house, I thirstily drank a glass of water. Shep, our dog, sniffed me and wagged his tail. I wasn't ready to go to bed, so I lay on the couch watching TV with the sound off. Shep lay across my feet. I was only home for a few minutes when a sound alerted Shep, causing him to jump off the couch. It was the sound of the dog door. I jumped up, thinking it was a raccoon, but it was my brother on his hands and knees by the back door. He was in his PJs, but his bare feet were filthy, scratched and bleeding. I spoke up in surprise and concern. Timmy, what are you doing? I must have said this louder than intended as I heard my mother get out of bed in the room above. I asked him where he had been. I wanted to talk to daddy, he said. Mom told you never to go there again. Tim looked confused. Dad told me if I don't go, he will hurt mommy. Mom hurried down the stairs in her robe. I told her as soon as she got to the kitchen. Mom, he went there again. She just stared at us for a minute, her face full of sadness. Finally, she spoke up. Get to bed. Now. Tim and I shuffled past her and up the stairs. I saw her take her car keys off the hook. 
I took Tim upstairs and then waited until my mother had gone out the front door. As I left, Tim turned and said, Dad says he wants to talk to you too. I rushed back down the stairs and out the back door. I had to get there before she did. Back to the phone booth. I cycled like crazy. My long legs on Tim's little bike pedals, through the empty lots, through the strip of woods, onto the derelict road. I dropped the bike near the tree line and ran towards the station. After slipping through the fence, I hid behind a rusting gas pump. My mom's SUV appeared and parked up a few seconds later. I stayed out of sight, just listening. I heard the car door open, and a few seconds later, the sound of the fence rattling as she scaled it. When she was inside the booth, I braved a peek. She dropped a quarter into the phone, picked up the receiver, and dialed. I couldn't see the numbers she pressed, but it was a series of all the same number. Probably sixes. There was a moment, and then I heard her speak. Hello? She said her full name and our address. Then she stated that she was the mother of my brother and I, and the widowed wife of my deceased father. And then she started to plead. I couldn't catch every word through her tears, but I heard, Spare my child. I paid his fee, I beg you. He's too young. Please, how much more do we need to pay? There was a long pause. She returned the phone to its cradle. What happened in the following days was, for me, the most heartbreaking experience since all of this began. My mother started to get her affairs in order. She tried to hide this from me, but it was obvious. She had long calls with my grandparents, explaining to them what foods we disliked, who our doctors were, what subjects we needed help with in school. I found a draft of her will on her desk, detailing how her assets would be distributed, an outline of her funeral wishes. She spent hours going over our family photo albums, spent more time with us, never yelled, and was extra patient with my brother and I. She told us about our father, who I only had vague memories of. She told us how they met, what he was like. She stopped going to work, cooked our favorite meals, and would watch cartoons with my brother beginning after school and going late into the night. I couldn't bear it. It was like losing her in slow motion without knowing when or how it would happen. Yet, I pretended I didn't know what she was doing. And I tried as hard as I could to enjoy the remaining days. We lived like this for a week. It was both the best and the worst week of my life. One night, when my mom was downstairs doing the dishes, I was in Tim's room. He was showing me a poster-sized collage he made with images cut out from our old National Geographic magazines. I asked him when he had time to make these. He said he'd been staying up all night working on them. Then he showed me under his bed. There were a dozen more collages that must have taken hours to make. He turned serious. Will you look after me if mom leaves? I told him mom would never leave. 
he spoke again. But she didn't pay. She helped Sid pay, and now she needs to pay for me. I couldn't say any more, as the tears choked me and I had to excuse myself for fear of scaring him. But just then, an idea started to seed in my brain. An idea to help my mother, to save her. It was nothing clever. I had no way of knowing it would work. But I had to try. It was stormy the night I decided to put my plan into action. To destroy the phone booth and all of the evil along with it. By half past midnight, I was pretty certain my mother was asleep upstairs. I was lying on the couch, in the dark, listening to the storm outside. It was so windy, the air whistled as it blew past our house. Tree branches knocked against the windows like great skeletons wanting to be let in. I listened to the dog door blowing open and closed while Shep whimpered under the coffee table. Twenty minutes later, I was in the car on the driveway, the rain beating down against the windshield. The keys were in the ignition. All I had to do was turn them, but I was petrified. I checked and triple-checked the rear-view and side mirrors of the large SUV. I started the car and dropped the lever into reverse, my hands slippery with sweat. I'm not sure, but I may have closed my eyes as I backed out of the driveway. I was driving so slowly down the street that I could have walked faster. I needed to find some courage. I pulled over in the same spot where I discarded the training wheels. I connected my phone to the stereo and found Sid's bolt thrower mix. Instantly, the car speakers were blasting a death metal guitar riff with drums so loud and fast they sounded like machine guns. A couple bedroom lights turned on in time to see me peel out, fishtailing onto the wet concrete. Minutes later, I was turning onto the derelict forest-lined street that led to the gas station. When the station started to become visible around the bend, I turned the volume to full and gripped the wheel hard enough to turn my knuckles white. Before I knew it, I was just seconds from collision. I didn't know if there would be pain. I didn't know if the booth would come through the windscreen and decapitate me. I looked at the clock as it turned 101. The very moment the car crashed through the metal fence and directly into the phone booth. Bits of glass and metal spun in every direction. The phone booth ripped from its concrete base and electrical wiring to come to land on its side in a shower of sparks. There was ringing in my ears. I pushed the inflated airbag down to see out the cracked windscreen. The phone booth was illuminated by a single car headlight. Despite the shattered glass and cracked plastic, it was mostly intact. The engine and music had stopped. The ringing in my ears gave way to another ringing. The sound of the payphone clanging, that shrill, agonizing ring. I was overcome by dizziness, so I crawled out of the car, along the wet concrete and toward the booth. Dark red blood pooled around the base of it, the puddle growing larger and larger, I had to silence that phone. 
As I got close, I picked out a shape inside. A small shape. Inside the booth lay Timothy. I don't know how long I crouched there in the rain and wind, clutching Tim's body. I don't know how long I was holding him, but at some point, I remember getting up to leave. I reversed out of the forecourt in the battered SUV. I saw Tim's bike leaning there near the gap in the fence. That was three days ago. I drove north. I drove through the night until I reached the next city. I left it parked under an overpass and continued on foot, not knowing where I was going. Just going. I slept in lobbies and stairwells of rundown apartment buildings. I had discarded my SIM card so that no one could track or call me. I'm writing to you now from a bus station that has Wi-Fi. I don't know where I'm headed, but I know I can't face my mother. I can't look her in the eye again. I can't fathom the pain that she's feeling. Outside, across the street from the bus station, sits another relic of a payphone. It is lit by a single street light. The door is open, inviting me in. I want so badly to call her, to let her know how sorry I am, to let her know I'm alive. But no matter how much I miss her, how much I want to hear her voice, how much I know she wants to hear from me, I know that I will never go near a payphone again. Mother, if you're reading this, Sorry. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This was The Last Payphone in My Town Rings at 1.01 a.m., written by Stephen Rivera and narrated by Kayla Temshiv. Music, editing, and sound design by Kayla Britchie, with assistance from Bridget Howard. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Michael Vasquez, Paul Doyle, Amy Harper, Delta Tango, Jackie Kay, Taylor Crabb, Chantel Payne, Nick, and Emily Douglas. Thank you so much for your support. Our patrons get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading. Merch, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at some version of 13pod or pod13. Just look for the logo. We'll have links in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes too. Bridget Howard is not your mom. Don't ask her to clean up after you. That's not her problem. She's not your mom. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month.